thanks very much for uh, finding time to talk to me about your recent publication, um, which is your, your kind of world, really, a world which is quite unique and special to your interests, I suppose. So I come to you first, Rob. Print journalism and kind of looking back at the historical days of, of uh, kind of print journalism. To, for those people who don't know, if you, if you want to give us a, a loose idea of uh, what it's all about. Okay, it's called The Newspaper That Scooped the World, The Cologne Post and British Journalism in the Occupied Rhineland, 1919 to 1929. James and I wrote this and published it, or James did, really did the publishing. What it's about is um, there's a little period between the, between the two world wars, which is often a bit of a lost period. Um, people don't know an awful lot about it in many cases. During that period, at the end of the First World War, the um, British Army, most people thought they just, I don't know, all got on a bus and went home. And there was a lot of other stuff to do. A lot of them marched into Germany, because don't forget, during the First World War, Germany wasn't occupied during the First World War by the Allied forces. The fighting was done elsewhere. But at the end of the war, James will correct me if I got any of this wrong, British troops uh, marched into part of Germany, along with some other Allied forces from other places, and they occupied part of Germany. It's a very long story. But during that occupation that lasted for 10 years, at the beginning, an enormous amount of British soldiers were posted uh, to the Rhineland. Uh, based at Cologne and um, James and I started reading about it and it's become quite apparent the most urgent thing was that you've got about a quarter of a million young men with nothing to do uh, so a life had to be organized for these young men and one of the key things about it I mean that's been written about to some extent but one of the key things you need to organize a community is some form of media uh, so a newspaper was set up it's called the Cologne Post and um, it was an incredibly interesting newspaper. And uh, no one's ever written anything about it, barely nothing, until James and I. James stumbled across it, and James and I went poking around in the archives, and we've written a book. So we've written a book about this weird, strange, forgotten British community in Germany that lasted for 10 years. And just to say, of course, so we, the three of us at one stage were colleagues at the uh, University of South Wales, and James then managed to find the tunnel and got through to, to Cardiff. But uh, it's nice to sort of pull it all together. And sort of academic collaboration is always a good thing. So James, tell me a little bit about partnering up with Rob for this and sort of talking through the idea. I imagine there were a couple of coffees or whatever, and you had this idea and you didn't quite know how to make it play out. And that must well, be an interesting stage, really. Well, the thing is, I got interested in this paper by a roundabout route, which I can explain later if you like. But once I realised that I would, was interested in uh, researching it in more detail, I realised that there were gaps in my own expertise um, uh, and that Rob would be a good person to fill them if he was interested. So I tried to get him involved because although I began my career in journalism in newspapers, I didn't stay in newspapers very long, only a few years before I moved into broadcasting, which is where I spent most or nearly all of my journalistic career. But I also knew that Rob had uh, researched his own PhD on the world of newspapers around the turn of the 19th, uh, 20th century. So he knew a lot more about the newspapers of that period than I do. So I thought if he was interested, he'd be a good person to get involved. So that's how it came about. We had, as you say, worked together. And um, I had collaborated with another of our colleagues in uh, the University of South Wales on a research project, uh, Dr. Philip Mitchell. And uh, I actually think it's very productive to work with somebody else. I think being on your own researching is quite lonely. It's good to have somebody to bounce ideas off and to think, shall we go this way or that way? Or what should we try and do? So I think it was a good idea. And luckily Rob was interested. And Rob is interested in military history as well 
So the whole thing gelled in that way. So, Rob, um, I mean, as a journalist, and I know you, you continue to write, you know, you, you, you write all, all the time locally, I think, in Bristol mm. at the moment. You've got a lot of experience in writing. The thing, the thing that grabs me about this, and I'm sure the thing which excited you first when you thought about the title, but this idea of this massive scoop. Actually, I, I, my recollection is that came a little bit later. Uh, uh, and um, what, I suppose what's worth pointing out is that uh, James and I are, are uh, history nerds, you know, we get excited about things that are far below the level of, you know, the new the greatest scoop in the world. I was just excited at the prospect, actually, of the the physical prospect of digging around in archives and newspapers that had probably never been touched to tell a story of a newspaper. The, the, yes. the story about the scoop is quite amazing, but even without that, it's a really interesting story, and I, I, I couldn't I couldn't resist diving into it. This the pleasure, you know, if you like that, in finding out something new. Uh, which you know is is what drives a lot of people to do journalism. It's what drives a lot of people to do history. So it was, uh, but the scoop, yeah, the scoop is an incredible story. As well. Should we ask James to tell us what that scoop was? Because yeah. the the banner headline is the, the the biggest scoop in the world. Paper that scooped the world. Yeah, you see, you have to you have to cast your mind back to a world before broadcasting. And mm-hmm. actually, this is quite interesting that this newspaper, its its life coincided with the period in which the BBC was formed and that's something that we look into but at the time of the scoop the only media there were were newspapers so the only way that people found out what was happening was apart from rumor was newspapers now Rob's explained that at the end of the war a quarter of a million British troops along with a lot of French troops American troops Belgian troops marched into the Rhineland of Germany, that is the part of Germany to the west of the Rhine, to occupy that area. And the reason they were doing that was because the war was not over. In November uh, 1918, there was a ceasefire, an armistice. It wasn't the end of the war. There was no guarantee that the Germans wouldn't uh, come out fighting again. So these troops were there as a buffer to stop the Germans getting back into France and causing any more trouble there and potentially to force the Germans to uh, agree to peace terms, the terms of a peace treaty. And that peace treaty, let's not forget, the First World War was, it was known as the Great War, not because it was great, a great thing to happen, because it was the biggest war anybody had ever experienced or could conceive of. And the death toll was horrific. The end of it was the most important thing in a way that had ever happened. The only thing that could be more important was how was the peace going to be settled? How would Germany be dealt with? What would Germany be forced to agree to? Mm -hmm. These negotiations got underway and the world was waiting to hear how would the war actually end when, when the Germans accepted the peace terms. And that's why it was the biggest scoop in the world because the paper that first published the terms of the peace treaty how Germany would be forced to give up its armed forces, give up territory, repay the cost of the war. It was this newspaper that told that story first. And it was, it claimed it as the biggest scoop in the world. And to justify that, if you look a few months later, when the peace treaty was actually signed at Versailles, some of the American papers actually called this the greatest moment in history. So if the signing was the greatest moment in history, then 
the news of what was going to be signed could legitimately be called the biggest scoop in the world. So, Rob, I'm, I'm sure it still guts you to this day that you didn't have the biggest scoop in the world. But <laughs> do you want to add to what James said? And kind of, I mean, it's 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 a fantastic story, isn't it? You know, yeah, amazing. You know, yeah, you you, you can't underestimate that 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 moment where this newspaper published that story because don't forget this 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 settlement this this peace treaty uh, of 1919 uh, um, was supposed to you know. That was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. You know, this peace treaty uh, did nothing of the sort. Uh, anyone who's done even GCSE history will probably know that, that the, the, the way Germany was dealt with gave rise to uh, the Second World War. Basically, this peace treaty did not work and it caused the Second World War. So this is, it really was an absolutely pivotal moment in, 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 uh, in, in world history. And but on, on, the, on the human level, um, and James did a lot of work uh, mainly around the actual scoop. The story of, of actually how that played out in, in, in Cologne and how that scoop found its way into this newspaper before any other newspaper is, is really fascinating. I mean, you know, there's, there's enough work in there to almost picture it. it, it, it uh, James might tell you a bit more about this, but, you know, there's a sort of, there's a, there's a dash in an airplane across Europe. There's a armed guards outside a bar. There's... There, there's a lot of drama in yeah. that moment, yeah. and um, you can almost feel it when when you read that that chapter. So, so the amount of research, James, that obviously went into this must have been vast. I don't know whether you, did you did you need to actually go to Cologne for part of this at all to get pictures and stuff? Um, well, actually, interestingly, I did go to Cologne. The first thing to say about that is that people in Cologne don't know anything about it. I went, I spent quite a bit of time in the Cologne City Museum, hmm. spoke, spoke to the, uh, the woman who runs it. She had the impression that the Cologne Post was a sort of a kind of military newsletter, something of no real great interest, information for the troops about this or that. No idea that it was a proper newspaper. I don't think she certainly don't think, think she knew anything about the scoop. I don't think she realized that the pages of the paper are actually a fascinating source of information, not just for British people about what the British were doing there, but for German people about what the, what the British were doing with the Germans. The court, they were, Germans were being brought before British military courts every day of the week for breaching the rules and so on and so forth. Um, so in Cologne, I found very little of any relevance really. Um, the research took us, as, as Rob said, into libraries where we got our hands dirty, literally handling old, yeah. old newsprint, which probably hadn't been touched for a hundred years. Wow. And some of the pages, the first, the first few months of it, bearing in mind that the, uh, the war or the fighting had only just started, it seems as though the paper available in Germany was of a very poor quality. And these pages have not survived well. And in fact, in the British Library, you're not allowed to touch no. the first six months lot because they're so fragile. Hmm. Um, so they sent me to the Cambridge University Library where their first six months are in slightly better condition. And we, we plowed through them. It's a daily newspaper published for years and years. So there's no way we could read all of it. No. And it's fair to say we, we've, we don't know what we've missed. We've no idea what we've missed. We know what we've found. We don't know what we've missed. And the, the other thing just to mention on the scoop, which Rob was talking about, 
it's not just that this was the first paper in the world to publish the terms of the peace treaty. It was a paper published in Germany. So that it was, it was how Germans first found out about it. The first Germans to wow. find out about what was going to happen to them were German people in Cologne who bought the Cologne Post. And they knew what was going to happen to Germany before the German government in Berlin knew. Wow. I mean, I just, this is a really, uh, I don't know whether this is relevant in the slightest. Recently, of course, we had the commemorative kind of celebrations, if you like, in people's streets and the, the kind of street party thing which happened uh, here um, in the UK. Now, in, in my street, everybody came out and, they, you know, old, old-fashioned kind of cakes coming out and all the rest of it and sort of celebrating all, all the rest of it. But in a way, it's just a case because it's lockdown, we're just nice to talk to people you know again, okay? So there's one person in the street who happens to be German her husband was was seen his kids were seen but she just didn't she she wasn't seen all day she's a, she's a young woman you know but even now now she didn't feel comfortable with being uh, around british people in 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 that kind of in, in that moment you know but bear in mind, Steve, that you're talking about a different war. I know, on the context of that kind of, you know, uh, antipathy between the two nations sort of still somehow or other lingers on in, in, a, in a real virtual way. Well, and the other thing that lingers on is that it's only a couple of months ago that the last British troops were withdrawn from Germany after having been there since 1945. But actually, yeah. if you look at it, they've been there since 1918 for all but 16 years. They wow. were there from 1918 to 1929, and they were back 16 years later in 45, and they've only just left. That's so incredible, that isn't it? In the last 102 years, there are only 16 years in which British troops have not been stationed in Germany. Not always, of course, as an occupying army, but nevertheless, it's yeah. a history of British military engagement in Germany, which yeah. If people know anything about it, they think the British Army of the Rhine was the army post-1945. In fact, that wasn't an army of the Rhine at all. It was an army of northern Germany. The army of the Rhine was the army we're talking about. The army that arrived on the Rhine in 1918 and stayed there till 1929. When they came back in 1945, they took the same name. They called themselves the British Army of the Rhine again, but they weren't the Army of the Rhine. They were, they were the Army of the North German Plains. The history of this sort of basically almost century-long occupation of Germany, which this book forms a part, is, is, is really very personal to a lot of people. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the garrison we're talking about, the occupation, the people who, uh, who, who had been reading this newspaper, I mean, um, after a while, um, their families arrived, you know, much as happened in the second stage from 1945 when, when we occupied Germany again, that became uh, um, tens of thousands of Brits. Um, and James and I have got personal connections with his story. Tens of thousands of Brits we grew up in Germany, uh, were part of German culture. Um, so it's actually a bit apart, aside from the military and journalistic stuff. I mean, the newspaper itself touches, you know, gets, it gives you a window into, in, into that that British way of life in Germany, which, as we said, went on for, for more or less a century with a gap in the middle and was very often about families, British families as well. James has an interesting story to tell about that. Well, I mean, the, the reason that I first found out about the Cologne Post was because my grandfather was one of those British soldiers who marched all the way from northern France and Belgium in 19, November 1918 to march to the, uh, to the Rhine arrived on the Rhine on the 13th of December 1918, crossed the Rhine 
into the bridgeheads on the east of the Rhine and was part of the occupying army for a year. And it was through researching my own grandfather's story that I stumbled across the Cologne Post. Interestingly, I know Rob hasn't said it, but his wife's family, I think his wife was brought up in Germany, yeah. part yeah. of this. My wife's yeah. brother still lives in Paderborn in northern Germany because he was there with the British Army mm. and mm. he stayed there and he's married a German woman, has German children and we're, we're hoping to visit him when the time is right and uh, so it goes on. Yeah, appreciate that we're not talking about the same war, but what I was kind of alluding to, because she's talking about this hundred years, has been, you know, there's the Britain-Germany thing, you know, it, it kind of somewhere deep within the consciousness, I think maybe the, the consciousness in Germany and the way it's perceived in Germany and the way it's kind of treated and remembered, I guess, in Germany and, and, and here in Britain are two very different things. Rob, would you say? Yeah, to be honest, I don't really know, but um, certainly uh, I can't imagine... Um, uh, there's any equivalent of the uh, sort of VE Day celebrations we had no, here, no. which were mostly uh, joined by people who were um, vastly too young to have actually ever been there. Yeah, I mean, on, on that note, yeah. I remember my parents telling me that nobody celebrated VE Day who had been in the war for years. It's a modern construction, yeah. but hey, who knows? Nobody in our street gave gave really, uh, really, uh, pretty much of a, no. a, a, a care towards that. It's more a case of that's a nice looking piece of cake, and I haven't seen you. Yeah, before. yeah. Well, that's the beauty of actually doing some real history, you know, with real research. This is not about, uh, you know, appropriating some message about the war for modern purposes. This is just, it's just, it's just a load of facts to tell a very dramatic story. You know? Yeah, but I mean, it's almost like, uh, to use a German word, capturing the zeitgeist. I mean, you, you, they've captured the spirit of that story, which otherwise wouldn't be there. So that's, yeah, that's just yeah. great, great journalism mm. in, its, in, its, in, its own, in its own right. Yeah. Um, James, yeah. in terms of the photography in the book, I'm guessing there's, there's photos in the book. Did you have any kind of interesting issues in sourcing photos at all? Or Well, it's an interesting point. Um, where copyright lies in this newspaper yeah. is an interesting question. I mean, it's it's out of copyright because it's 100 years old. So the only illustrations that you'll find in the book are illustrations of actual copies of the physical newspaper that are in my or our personal collection. The interesting thing in the pictures that you're flashing up is that it's, this is the interesting point. In 1945, as your cuttings there show the Germans were forced to agree to an unconditional surrender yeah total and absolute giving in right in 1918 nothing of the sort they simply agreed to stop fighting their forces were intact and were allowed to withdraw intact into German territory they did have to leave weapon the heavy weaponry behind and so on but it's a totally and that's why there was an unconditional surrender in 1945 because it didn't work the first time round. The peace treaty, the peace negotiations, they did not prevent Hitler reoccupying the Rhineland in 1936 in breach of the treaties, didn't stop the Germans from rearming when they weren't supposed to, it did not prevent the Second World War. So the, the approach in 1945 was completely different. They didn't just occupy the Rhineland, they occupied the whole of Germany and dismembered the German state completely, which then of course led to the ultimate division of Germany into Western and Eastern Germany, which lasted for what? Um, nearly 50 years, 45 to 89. You can see, I mean, I know Steve's sort of uh, moving around between wars, you know. Some historians you know, would argue that the, the First and Second World War were just one long war with a gap in the middle, mm. and, and, the, and the first one caused the second. 
And actually, there's a little, another, again, there's a little personal hint of that, something I don't think James has mentioned yet about, James told me that when his grandfather was, was billeted in Germany, I think with a German family, during the 1920s, during that occupation, when James's grandfather left, if I'm right in thinking, his German host said to him, see you next time. Yeah, he, he was only there at the end of 1919, but yeah. after the peace treaty. But yeah, somebody, somebody said to him, I think it was an old German soldier, um, said, you know, okay, I'll treat to say until the next time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. How, right, finished. how right he was, yeah. Mm. Mm. There's, there's so much to it. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, we've published a book, but I don't think the book has had the impact that we'd hoped for uh we're not really getting the message through i think a lot more people are potentially interested in this story than we've managed to reach so far this podcast is great if it spreads the message a little bit wider that there is an interesting topic here who cares about some obscure english language newspaper published in germany between 1919 and 1929 what the hell has that got to do with anything but actually we think there's quite a lot of interesting stuff in there well, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And even though, I mean, just, just before we came on, I was digging around and trying to find imagery. And even though I, I have at times today been in the wrong war, it still helped to give a context, I think, to, to the interest value of what you're talking about and the differences between those two things. I don't know. Um, I'll ask Rob this um, uh, on a similar kind of subject, I suppose. I know you both got an interest in sort of military history, etc. Did you, by writing this book, Rob, discover things that you didn't previously know? Yeah, far less about the military side, you know, but we have really focused on the newspaper. There, there, is, some, there is some history there about the politics and the military side of what happened in the interwar years. We, we, we were desperate not to try and rewrite that. We're not we're qualified. It doesn't need to be done. <coughs> so we very much concentrated on the, um, the history of the newspaper and, and how the world looked through the lens of that newspaper. Uh, so what did we discover? Mainly about, about, the, about the, the nature of the journalism they were doing. They, they achieved something rather special, which is that the newspaper appeared to be a British Army newspaper. It was staffed by soldiers who were being paid by the British Army, as far as we could work out. Um, but the British Army appeared not to really have, feel it had an awful lot of responsibility for it. And it started to make money through advertising, including taking advertising from German businesses which is a bit controversial, questions are asked in Parliament. And this newspaper occupies this fascinating, as far as we can work out, this fascinating sort of middle ground between being a little bit connected to and dependent on the state in the shape of the British Army, but not in any overbearing manner, and being commercially viable enough to be fairly independent. So it's a real oddity. It wasn't an official British Army newspaper. It was sort of almost a commercially viable newspaper, much like you know, the Daily Mail or the Express would have been at the time. So by that, they managed to occupy this quite interesting middle ground in journalism where you've got enough money and enough support to be relatively independent, but the support is not uh, clamping down on you. So they they would publish stuff that was up to a point a little bit critical of, of the army. They knew how far they probably ought to go. Sometimes they acted as an official mouthpiece of the army. Sometimes they were very independent. So it's um, it was interesting to see it because in journalism, newspapers, and with broadcasting, you know, you sort of got a choice. Either you 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 produce something that is funded by making lots of money through advertising and circulation, and then the, your the market may be controlling the way you behave and what you put in your publication, or the state 
is funding it and then they control it. So this seemed to be a piece of fairly independent journalism popping up in the most unlikely of circumstances. That's, that's what we discovered, apart from it being great fun. So yes, and to ask James something <coughs> off the back of that, you, you, you were saying earlier, James, you know, why would you be interested in you know, looking back all that, to that period of time? So to ask you the same question, why would we be interested in that? And is this in fact of value and interest to young people like the kind of students who occupy the universities that we're familiar with? Mm, well, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a big one. I think uh, what, one of the things that we tried to um, build on what Rob's just described is a little bit of a theory that at this time, in the wake of the Great War, something might have been going on in journalism, which finally found its expression in the BBC, which was an idea of public service journalism where the commercial imperative is not overwhelming. So the BBC was funded. So the BBC didn't have to cater to the lowest common denominator. It wasn't chasing uh, sales. It in fact had no competition. If you wanted to listen to the radio, there was only really one radio to listen to. So the BBC had that opportunity to be what it wanted to be. At the same time, as Rob has described, the BBC had a close relationship with the state and sort of knew where the boundaries were. And when it came to the general strike of 1926, there was a lot of friction between the BBC wanting or possibly trying to be independent and unbiased and pressure from the government that the BBC should be simply pumping out the government point of view. And we think that what the Cologne Post did in the years during which the BBC came into existence was a similar sort of journalism. And in fact, if you, if you think about the BBC's slogan, which is that its mission is to inform, educate and entertain, the Cologne Post says almost exactly that in 1919, that that's what it sets out to do. Like the BBC, it had no competition. If you want, if you were a British soldier or an English-speaking person in the Rhineland in 1919, 1920, 1921, there was absolutely no other way for you to get information, education, or entertainment except by buying the Cologne Post. The papers from London took days to get there. And in fact, it was when um, airmail became more common and the London papers arrived easily into Cologne that the Cologne Post stopped publishing daily and became a twice weekly paper because it it wasn't it was no longer unique they could they could be getting the times or whatever else it was in from London at the time it started we theorize that it was doing something similar to what the BBC did it was sort of semi-autonomous semi-official but semi-independent and pursuing an idea of public service journalism, which we think is quite interesting. Not everybody agreed with us when we pushed that theory out. And certainly there were, there were, there were constraints on that. There are things they didn't report on. But they, they tried to reflect the life of the people that, they, that were reading. They tried to respond to the concerns of those people. They, tried to, they certainly were heavily into educating the soldiers as well as informing them. 
and they were certainly into entertainment. I mean, they, they promoted the entertainments that the army put on, cinemas, shows, concerts and all that, but they also serialized short stories and that kind of thing. So they had, they had a similar sort of view of their role. And it's interesting to note that all the pioneers of the BBC came out of the First World War. John Reith had been a senior officer in the First World War. Many of the early producers and journalists yeah. in, the, in the BBC had come out of the war. So they were people coming out of a shared experience of horror, destruction, devastation, noise, and trying to create a more civilised world by their journalism, you could argue. Yes, I mean, and of course, in terms of the history of kind of broadcasting, you know, the, the, the a whole lot of communications stuff, you know, obviously uh, came from the war. So there, there's a context to why it's it's still relevant now uh, mm. on its own. Um, so from a historical point of view, there, there's a lot there, Rob. But you, in terms of you with your journalism course at the mm. at the University of South Wales these days and these bright young things, um, mm. how does that relate to kind of journalism as a storyteller, as a kind of, you know, communicator, et cetera, these days? What can, what can you pull out of that, do you think? I, I think it, there's some really enduring lessons in it. I mean, you, you know, these are lessons that you don't have to look back as far as this book to find them, but they're, they're in there. And that there's a lesson about um, the role of journalism in, in helping to build and support and, and maintain communities, providing cohesion for communities. Uh, and whether that journalism is with a, for an old newspaper or community radio or the BBC or or it's uh, or it's something sort of under the radar through Facebook or something. But um, I mean, one of the big things I learned about this book, and you can see this happening in communities all around the country, and you can particularly see where it's not happening, is where you've got a community that does not have the communities need journalism, some kind of journalism to see themselves, to see themselves reflected back and to communicate with each other using, you know, verified factual information. And without that, as we've seen in some parts of, 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 of Wales, where um, some journalism has not become commercially viable and it's sort of disappeared, there are communities that really struggle to know each other. I know Steve's very interested in community radio stepping into that breach. So that's one of the big things about this book, is it chronicles a time, it's a very human story, of when, and it's a really enduring story, of uh, this was a, a community that, that just appeared overnight. You know, these people weren't there, and then the next day they marched across a bridge and they're there. And mm. I'll tell you what, it struck me, I think, that one of the first things they did was to set up a football league. Yeah, of course. You've got, you've got a quarter of a million bored young men. Yeah. The biggest threats that they, the British Army officers could perceive, W the Russian Revolution only just happened, the biggest threats, you've got a quarter of a million young men with basically nothing to do, uh, they are two. One is Bolshevik Revolution and the other one is venereal disease, right? And uh, that was seriously their worries. That's what happens to a load of sort of bored 18-year-olds when you leave them in one place. Men, give them sorry, a ball. girls. Give, yeah. them a ball. give them a ball. But how can you run a football league if no one knows where the fixtures are and there's no write-ups? Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. need a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. great, great. And you can't do any of this stuff mm. unless there's a means of communicating with each other. And the newspaper's still a great way of doing it. That's a great, that's a really great example. I've got three yeah. kind of quick ones to fire at you just towards the end of this. James, I know you've got a big interest in citizen journalism. I don't know whether you wanted to kind of pick anything out of what Rob was just saying about there, about how communities communicate and the sort of the value of citizen journalism. Well, I suppose the most interesting thing in relevant to that with the Cologne Post was that certainly for the first year or so, it published letters from its readers. 
And I think, and there's a chapter in the book about those letters, and those letters are very interesting because these are the readers raising the things that they think are important, and it's fascinating to know what they were talking about. It also meant that the newspaper was in touch with the views of the readers and could respond to that, and sometimes they actually took up an issue and reported on it further. But, of course, the thing that I found interesting with those letters is that, um, very unlike the world we live in now with social media, the gatekeeper, the editor of the Cologne Post, was in an extremely powerful position. We just don't know what letters didn't get published. We've no idea what they were writing about, the people who were writing letters that never saw the light of day. Nowadays, of course, you talk about citizen journalism, everybody can have their say, everybody can tweet or stick it on Facebook, and it can be true, false, or anything else you like. Um, so everybody can have their say, People were having their say in the Cologne Post, but I really would like to know, I'd like to read the letters that didn't get published. I'd really like to read the letters <laughs> yeah. that didn't get published. That may, that may never happen, but uh, I can see the, see the appeal. This book, target audience, is it for sort of, is it, and how much of an academic book of it, is it, how much of a kind of uh, a more readable book is it perhaps than that? Well, yeah, that, 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 that's a question that we asked ourselves many times as we did it. Um, mm. We decided quite early on that we thought there was a good story in here. There's, there's really? some there's, fantastic story. Yeah, there's some drama. Um, and we thought it's a good story. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a ripping yarn, you know. So, um, and yeah, it's carefully done. You know, it's referenced. We've both got backgrounds in academia. Um, we were keen to get it right and, and to not overstate any claims we made. And there's a little bit of uh, weaved into it. There's a very modest amount of... Um, uh, theory about how journalism works based on our, uh, our knowledge of its history and so on. So it's a little bit of a hybrid and, and, and that um, uh, and that led to some issues with trying to get someone to publish it. We um, pitched it towards a more general readership market and made a very long meeting with a very interesting publisher in London who described just how many copies he thought would sell and why that wouldn't make a profit for him. And then we investigated the academic publishing route and really it's just too much of a good story and not apparently groundbreakingly significant enough to make an academic book. So it's sort of fallen down the cracks in the middle somewhere. So um, we published it ourselves. Um, we, you know, we were never looking to, for any, any glory, any academic recognition, any money. We did this almost entirely in our own time. I should point out in case my boss is listening. Um, so our only interest is we think there are a fair few people out there who'd be interested in this and we just want to share it with them. Uh, and, 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 and that's it. We think it's worth sharing who they are across the world. I think they probably add up to quite a few, yeah. you know, not tens of thousands, but um, anyone who's interested in the interwar period, anyone's interested in history of newspapers, probably more so than military history, to be honest, um, would I'm sure find this interesting. And it's, you know, it's not very big. It doesn't take a lot of reading. And we have, kept up a reasonably pacey storytelling style in it so i mean i'm listening to this and it's it's not a domain that i know much about at all actually no. but uh, I'm, I'm really getting the value of it i mean if i i, I think you know if i had a, a, an independent film production company it, it, it's a, it's just it's, it can, i can see the value in that you know it, it's a it's a great story you know the biggest scoop in the world ever you know the idea of these people you know crossing that bridge and then the thing growing out of that it's, it's a great story yeah, there is, I mean, there is some human drama in it. I mean, the first editor, you know, who was a soldier, we, I don't think he had any background in this. I mean, this is terribly sad. He, he, we accessed the 
um, personnel records of some of these people, some of these soldier journalists. Oh, yeah. um, a terribly sad story. The editor of this newspaper appears to have basically worked himself to death and died in his billet in Cologne while on the eve of his wife coming out from England to visit him. So there's some real, you know, actually in that oh. case, very tragic human story in it. Some of the other characters in it, these soldier journalists, a couple of them, we tracked them down. They went on to become quite significant journalists elsewhere. Um, they were um, a an interesting little band of people. Well, you're an interesting band of people too. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations to the pair of you on actually getting this to happen by hook up by crook and, and, and getting it out there. You know, I think it's a fantastic story. I hope people do actually pick up on it because it is in its own right such an interesting thing. But um, James Stewart and Rob Campbell, thank you very much. And Rob, do you want to just show the book one more time and maybe mention where people can get hold of a copy? I'll show the book and James can, James is our publisher. Okay. Right? James can, I'll hold the book up in front of my face. James can do the uh, talking. The interesting thing about that is the illustration. That, uh, that, that illustration was actually designed by a soldier in the occupying army as part of competition to come up with an image for the Christmas special issue of 1918. And it shows the watch on the Rhine. Here, you, the, down below you is the river. You can just see in the bottom right-hand corner the great cathedral of Cologne. And up there you've got a soldier... A, uh, a, a, a sailor and a couple of nurses, whatever they are, representing the the British on the right. And um, we published that that illustration, as I say, comes from there. And uh, we published it using the software that Amazon and Kindle make available, which is quite useful and quite clever. And so you can buy it on Amazon either as an ebook or a, as a as a paperback in the form that you've just seen. Great teamwork. Thank you very much.